Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the Aquarius Podcast is sponsored by Awaza. Awaza is well known for their line of outdoor pond and water garden products and are now stepping into the indoor aquatics market. Their lineup includes products like the internal BioPlus filters and external Biomaster canister filters. Both lines of filtration offer models with heater integration to help you declutter your tank and show off your plants and fish. Awaza also has a great selection of aquariums in their BioOrb line. Their BioOrb Cube Aquarium actually won the award for best aquarium product at the SuperZoo trade show. So check out these great products and more by clicking on the links in the show notes. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Tuesday, April 9th, 2019. My guest today is Michael Barber. Michael is a lifelong hobbyist who has specialized in keeping and breeding Corydoras and Epistogrammas. Michael also has extensive experience traveling South America collecting fish in the wild. I'm excited to have him as a guest. So Michael, welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. Thank you so very much for having me. It, yeah, absolutely, Michael, and thank you. Uh, we've got a three-hour time difference, so we are East Coast uh, evening time for you. Um, so thank you very much for making time in your evening to come on the podcast and, and talk about your experiences. So wh- where do those experiences start for you? In the bio, I did say that you're a lifelong hobbyist, um, but what are some of your earliest memories fish keeping? Well, my parents gave me a fish tank when I was six, seven, eight. I, I really don't recall uh and it was one of the old meta frames slate bottom with the uh, incandescent stainless steel hood and a box filter and i have fond memories of 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 grounding myself with tingling sensations on that uh, that hood and in that era we used uh fiberglass as a filter medium so you'd end up with Splinters of fiberglass in the end of your fingers, but it, it was a good start. And uh, they were able to find some guppies for me, and I was hooked when my mother let me stay home one day from school to watch my female guppy give birth. That is that is excellent. Yeah, and so one once again for the audience, I mean, one more example of somebody getting their start. Um, and, you know, at, at a very young age for you, uh, but with guppies, though, uh, it is such a common thread that, you know, so many people that have such a passion for the hobby, you know, at one point or, or another or very early in their Aquarius career, they're keeping guppies. And it's that witnessing the the magic of, of that live birth, right, that just really um, enthralls you and gets you hooked on the hobby. Yes, yes, it was, it was great. And, you know, by by 10, I was uh, had bred uh uh, Pearl Grammys, and they've always had a fond spot in my memory. And um, the local Kmart where I grew up, they had one 29-gallon tank, right? And that was my fish store. And I would go there quite frequently with my pennies that I had managed to put together uh, to see what was in the tank, and they were apparently not in charge of what they were receiving. So they got a real hodgepodge of different kind of fish. And over a period of about a year and a half, when I, before my teens, I had managed to gather together some discus, just plain brown discus. And I would buy them right as they were dying the uh and get them for like a dollar each and i had this one male that a a rasbora had taken one of his eyes and he was my my prime breeder and that was mid-60s that i was breeding discus uh and shortly thereafter i a fish store opened in a guy's basement in in the town this is billings montana and if I recall correctly, we worked together to get a fish club started in that town. And so I was maybe 13, 14 and had a, a, a bedroom filled with fish containers. <laughs> you know, I take a styrofoam and line it with uh, plastic and, and breed in it. Uh, I get a big heavy wood box and I would 
uh, line that with plastic and, and breed in it. Uh, and put together fish tanks on my own uh, with uh, salvage glass and managed to buy a tube of caulk here or there, uh, the silicone that uh, was was available then. The, the silicone without the uh, without the uh, anti-bacterial fungus growth stuff that uh, you have to be real careful when you're shopping for silicone now in it and that's not good for the fish but uh, yeah I, I was breeding like crazy uh, when I was in my early teens and you know my parents at one point said I should open up a fish store <laughs> I, I didn't but they uh, they thought I had too many fish in my bedroom I could walk between the fish tanks and get to my bed and get to my closet. And so then they were, they, it sounds like they were pretty supported, uh, supportive of it. Yeah. I mean, joking uh, a little bit with you, but you know, not, not too upset that your fish, your room was basically a fish room. Uh, no, they weren't, they weren't upset. And I, I had not wandered out of the fish room with tanks and that kind of stuff. So it was not infringing on the house and I had a basement bedroom. So, it wasn't bringing down the house either. Uh, I, I at one point tore up all the carpet because I had gotten too much water on it from leaking fish tanks. And to go back a little bit, Michael, in your story, so you were breeding discus, and this was at a young age, and this was in Billings, Montana, that that was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And did you have any concepts? So one of the things that you know we immediately think of when we hear breeding discus is. Uh, just the challenge around needing to have really, really soft water. Um, I, I'm guessing one, like, were you aware of that kind of challenge at this young age? Um, or did Billings, does Billings just naturally have a, a softer water? Uh, the water in Billings comes out of uh, off the Yellowstone River, uh, which is uh, fed by glaciers up in Yellowstone Park and the snow melt and that and not real heavy mineral laden. I never did know the water quality there. I just knew that I was very successful in breeding. Uh, I drove my mother crazy with mosquitoes. <laughs> That's great. That, that weren't eaten. And, and I had, in the summer, I had good sources for tube effects uh, and, and fed lots and lots of live foods in the summers. So what was your source for tube effects then? Because I'm not, so I know bloodworms are the, um, I'll, I'll probably butcher the pronunciation, but the chronominid, and I know that from um, just kind of being a little bit into fly fishing, right? Some of the patterns that you tie for trout are the bloodworm, or they don't call them bloodworms in fly fishing, they, they call them chronominid patterns. Um, yeah. So what would be the, what's the tube effects worm then? Well, it, it, it's like a bloodworm, but it's not red. It's a... Uh... Well, you, you can get tube effects to feed now. Um, we had, in Billings, we had lots of irrigation ditches. And along the edges of the irrigation ditches where they had low kind of berms with water that was maybe an inch deep at the most and kind of stagnant and not too pleasant, uh, that's where I would find lots of tube effects and live food. Okay, and so like a bloodworm, then it's just basically a larval stage, right, of a um, uh, of an actual like you know airborne insect. To be honest with you, I haven't the faintest idea. Huh. Okay, that's something for uh, if anybody knows that's listening to this, drop it in the comments, or uh, I'll just have to Google it and, and see because now my curiosity has been piqued. Um, and, and so. What's funny is I hear you talk about breeding discus at a young age, um, you know, this very, this sense of ingenuity of you kind of doing your own DIY projects at a very young age as well. And knowing that you've gone collecting with Dean Tweedell, uh, I have to imagine that you guys just got off really, really well because you have both of those things in common, right? Both breeding discus so young and both having this knack for kind of the DIY. Uh, I can't express how good of a friend Dean is. He's just such a gentleman and he's so much fun to be with. And I've had the privilege of 
collecting with him in South America twice now. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to possibly again this summer. Yeah, I know. And, and definitely on one of these trips, I'm going, I'm going to uh, stow away in either Dean or Corey or somebody's suitcase. And then I'm going to come along with you guys. Uh, this year is going to be a little tough because of, you know, just kind of the family situation. But um, I definitely, definitely want to get down there. I mean, it's absolutely on the list of, of things that, that I need to do. So jumping jumping forward to that, Michael, um, you know, your progression through the hobby, if we were to just go ahead and jump straight to, because I, I really want to focus on Michael, the Amazon Explorer, um, what drove you to going to South America for the first time? Um, and, and was it for collecting fish or some other adventure? Well, my first trip to South America was in 1972 when I was a high school exchange student. And luckily I learned Spanish. Uh, at that time, but for fish collecting, I had always looked at a fish tank and dreamed what the home of that fish looked like. And for me, it was kind of, uh, a lifelong journey getting to the point where I went to see where my fish were coming from originally. And luckily I was a member of the Potomac Valley Aquarium Society in Northern Virginia, outside Washington, D.C., where I live. And I discovered that one of the members had been going down to Iquitos, Peru, for a number of years, collecting tropical fish. And he, would, he, he had offered more than once to members of the club, saying, if anybody would like to come down with me, uh, please do. So one day I said, are you serious? And he said, of course, uh, I'm serious. So he kind of took me under my wing and prepared me for that first trip. And I had a delightful time. Um, and I actually took down my son, who was in his mid-teens at that time, maybe late teens, I don't remember. Uh, probably, let's see, 14, 15. And we had a great time. And actually, that trip that he was on no, it was the second trip down there that I took my son. Excuse me. So that, that got the bug. And I was going down every year to 18 months after that, collecting uh, with MT Amazon Expeditions. And just spending lots of time going up and down the rivers, on the creeks. Um, they call them arroyos or quebradas down there. Uh, and And just... Collecting fish, I, I have vivid memory of, of this one little stream where we collected uh, brooches, splendens, and seven species of Corydoras. Oh, awesome. Uh, all the way from uh, Rabaudi, uh, Fry, to uh, Pygmaeus, uh, Trilineatus, Reticulatus, uh, just, and, and uh, Elegans type, uh, probably Napoensis, since it was off the Napo River. Um, but just amazing. And then, you know, collecting tetras and the, the joy of catching that first, uh, first neon tetra. <laughs> now we, you know, I used to be able to buy them five for a dollar, but you, you travel, you know, two days to get to the jungle and you go out and you catch your neon tetra. It's just, it's so neat to, to do, catch something like that. No, absolutely. I mean, such such staples in the hobby to be able to, you know, wake up and, and go get them in their, their native habitat or observe them in their natural habitat is just, you know, it, I, I, I can't imagine what that what that kind of feeling is going to be like. It just seems so surreal, like something that we take for granted in our stores. Um, but to actually catch that staple fish um, in its wild habitat just seems like such a great experience. Yeah, and the wild habitat is, is nothing like the pristine, clear aquarium that shows off the fish. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to have people complain that my, my fish tanks were filled with mold, you know, half full of uh, oak leaves. And, uh, and I'd say, well, if you look real carefully in there, there's hundreds of baby epistogrammas or, or autocyclus or something like that. And that's that's what the way they breed in the wild. And I tr have experienced that. And that's what I try to mimic here is kind of leaf bone that 
most of the fish live in and the fry live in and they get a lot of their food nutrients. Mm-hmm. So let's go back. So this first trip down to um, down to Peru, it was in 2006, I think you were telling me before we actually kicked the interview off? Uh Six, seven, or eight. Okay, yeah, so I don't remember. <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, but so one thing and I will don't ask me how many times I've been down to South America collecting because it's too many to remember. I've got to, I've got two hands and and two feet, so I've got twenty digits. Is it more than that? Oh, easily. Oh, easily. wow, awesome. So, okay, so to go back to, you know, before you are this, you know, what you are now, right? Like somebody that's exceeding 20 trips down to the Amazon, um, collecting fish, like, you know, I, you can't, you can't argue somebody's credibility and experience when they've gone down there 20 times to collect, but the first time, right? So if we're going to go back to 2006, um, can you remember like any of the, any of the things that your friend tried to prepare you for expectations? Um, where were you underprepared? Where were you overprepared? So somebody like myself that hasn't gone down there yet, um, what were some of your lessons learned or some of your fun, funny anecdotes of getting ready to go down there the first time? Well, he did a real good job of preparing me, you know, uh, um, Took down some old tennis shoes, uh, some some zip-off pants that quick-drying nylon zip-off pants. Um, you know, a good hat, suntan lotion, bug spray, those kinds of things. Probably the, the my one mistake was taking down too much, because when you're when you're on a boat with a whole bunch of people that are collecting fish. Who cares if you got clean clothes or dirty clothes? You know, you're having so much fun collecting fish. That's the whole thing. Uh, and now I, I I barely go down with anything because I've got clothes clothes I keep down there. Uh, but you know, one the one thing I thoroughly enjoy is mentoring people going down on their first first trip and helping them. Uh, as my friend helped me years ago, kind of pass it on, right? Uh, so when you're ready to go, uh, I'll 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 help you get ready, and I'm sure Dean will too. No, I, I mean I'm I will absolutely listen with uh, with open ears and and suck it all in with a sponge. And you know if you guys if you guys are telling me I'm packing too much stuff, like then I'm just gonna have to purge and and take a little bit less. But no, I completely get that, especially the the quick dry clothing. Like if you're if you're bringing primarily quick dry clothing, there's no real reason to bring that much because even if you get it dirty, um, you know you you can wash it off and it will dry off fairly quickly. Or if you're in such a humid environment, like it's not even really gonna matter then at that point, right? Like um, yeah. you know, you don't want to bring a ton of clothes and burn yourself down. And I think just with all the, the work travel that I've done in the past, you know, half decade that I've gotten pretty good at traveling as light as I possibly can for work. Um, you know, sometimes you take a trip up somewhere where it's snowing and you live somewhere where it's not. And, you know, you don't really know how to pack. Well, at least me, me being a West coast boy, I don't know how to really pack for, for snow, like in Montreal in the wintertime. So I tended to over bias and, and, and over index on packing big things. So, that's a tangent and a little bit of a struggle on the packing end, but I think a trip down to South America with your guys' input, um, yeah, I think uh, I think I could definitely get behind this whole travel real light um, and just go down there and, and just be ready to have a good time and work. Yeah, it, it's a, a great way to go. Um, I, I currently am the tropical fish collecting expert with MT Amazon Expeditions. And we do three collecting trips a year, and we often have first-timers. And it's just a joy uh, taking them out and collecting. And and they all have collectoritis on that first trip. And and I did, too. Uh, oh, I want to keep this. Oh, I want to keep this. Oh, this is neat. Uh, yeah, let, oh, I need some more of these. And, uh, and, and now I'm at the point. I've, I've downsized my fish room from over a hundred fish tanks <clears throat> to just one show tank and three quarantine tanks. Wow. That's, yeah, that's but, a huge departure. Well, I, I get, I, I get why I get, I, I think I get how you're going to build this out, but that's, that's pretty striking. Yeah. Well, I have the best fish room in the year several times a year. Mm-hmm. No, and I get the, yeah, uh, the I get that. <laughs> the best fish fish uh, fish room in the world several times a year. 
and and I actually have a presentation on on my fish room builds and all that kind of stuff. And I I've done presentations all over the country, and one of them is <clears throat> the perfect fish room. And I start out by asking people, what well, what do we try to do? And and so I I type real quick as they're giving me suggestions, and it's you know lots of tanks, good water, you know, good good water changes, good food, perfect conditions for breeding and all those kind of stuff. And and you know, we all want to do that. Then I my next slide is a picture of the Amazons. Here it is. The light conditions are perfect, the water changes are perfect, the food is perfect, the breeding substrate or whatever situations, the fish have figured it out over millennia. Uh, how to breed there. So that's the perfect fish room. Yeah, that auto water change system too is pretty dialed in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the largest water flow in the world. Yeah. What is the, um, so, you know, you love working with people uh, that are first time on these adventures. Um, what is the rate in which people, like a first time visitor, will actually come back again? Like, is it, 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 it seems like, you know, these aren't, these aren't that inexpensive of a trip, right? Like you probably need to save up a little bit unless you're just, you know, Scrooge McDuck swimming in, in gold coins all the time. Um, but do you find that, uh, you know, a good number of people come back every couple years? Yes. Yes. It, it's, it's, um, it costs less than a thousand dollars for most of the United States to get to, uh, to the jungle in Peru round trip. Um, from Washington, D.C., it's about $800 to fly down there. And then the week is $1,500. So you're talking $2,500, and most of us spend more than $2,500 for a week-long vacation. Yeah, that's not that's actually not bad, the way if it's, um, if that's how it kind of pans out, right? And if the I'm assuming that in your lodging and feel free to use this as a platform to really talk up empty Amazon. Like you can consider this to be a podcast infomercial for you to talk about, you know, your whole packages and everything that you guys do, because I think there's such great information there. Um, but so food lodging, you know, once you get to that in the $1,500, um, that's all inclusive. Yeah. We meet you at the airport and everything's taken care of after that. Um, and then we get you back to the airport in, in Iquitos, uh, in the jungle. And the only cost you may have is if you want souvenirs, uh, if you're going to drink a lot of beer, uh, it's, it's, uh, $2 a bottle and that's, uh, two thirds of a liter bottle. So it's a big bottle of beer. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, I'm, not, I'm not good with my uh, liquid measurements, but that sounds pretty big. It, it's, it's about a quart. Um, and the shipment of the fish home is not included. And that runs about uh, $100 for uh, a fish box. Okay, that, and then yeah, often, that's not too bad. Often, often people stay a day or two after we get back to Quito's from a week out on the boat and we'll go to Belain where the fishermen um, that serve the tropical fish exporters, many of them have, have fish. And I, I, we go down there and we ask people if they have uh, ornamental fish because they know what, uh, Pesis ornamentales are that they're for the ornamental fish industry. One year I was down there and and in the Belain area, and this uh, gentleman comes up to me with these two little bags that probably half an inch in circumference and maybe two inches long. And he he holds them up to me and he says, would you like to buy these? And I said, are those epistogromoides? And he said, oh, yes, yes, they're epistogromoides. And they were indeed. <clears throat> and I asked him how much. And he said, um, one sole. And uh, sole is about 33 cents. And I said, each? And he said, no, no, for the, for the pair, the male and female. And that was, that was 30 cents for the male and female? 
Yeah, it was about thirty wow. cents for the male and female. And 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 I asked him if he had more, and he said yes, yes. <clears throat> so I went to his house, and his house is up on stilts, and we went up into his house and met his family and all that. And uh, I bought all of his epistogromoides from him, and he was a happy guy. Another story down in that area, uh, we were down there, and I don't remember what year it was. There was uh, this one lady that we stopped, and she buys from the fishermen and gets big lots together, and then those big lots she sells to the exporters. <clears throat> and I saw that she had lots of uh, equus pencilfish, Nanostomus equus, the pencilfish that, that swim at an angle. Um, and, and I, I asked her, oh, can I buy some of those? And she said, how many do you want? And I said, oh, you know, 25, 30, you know, thinking that I'd have a nice school in one of my, uh, one of my display tanks. And she said, oh, no, no, that's, no, I, I can't tell you that many. And, and, uh, I said, why? And she said, it's too much work to count out that many. And I said, but you've got thousands and thousands of here, of them here. Uh, can't you? Can't I get a few? And she said, Well, there's 700 over there in that bin. I just got through counting. You can have those. And it was about twenty dollars. Wow. Yeah. So for those that don't know that that particular pencil fish, it's uh, an excellent um, dither fish. I'm actually, I think, I want to get them for my leopard frog tank. Um, and in the in the fish stores that that is actually a fairly inexpensive even once it hits our retail stores so you know as you kind of build out this story like that completely makes sense that this fish i mean they probably sell it by the pound right like it's just one of those things where um you know i, I don't want to do the fish disservice because they're really cool they swim at an angle they're great for dither they're a beautiful fish in their own respect um but and they, they school together and they all they all assume the same angle and swim together mm -hmm. and at night it stripes mm-hmm but it's just one of those fish, though, that, you know, like they can just catch them in such large quantities that like anything that can hit our retail stores in America and have a fairly inexpensive, inexpensive retail price, like those things are getting bought and sold by the pound because there's just so many of them down there, right, that are available for capture. And so to hear that, you know, she's like, oh, no, like <laughs> counting out 20, not even worth it, like that thing's about 700 you can just have all those like that's a, that's yeah. great so, so i i cornered the market for a while on the nostomus equus in the uh northern virginia region mm -hmm. and now th there is um there is one of the pencil fish though it's like the the red the the red variant though that that one is actually fairly expensive um i've seen the price that, list for that, that guy is, uh, morton thalari yeah 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 and i was in one of the exporters down there a number of years ago and the um i i said to the people that were there with me i said hey guys come over here look there's a whole bunch of nanostomus morton thalari and i hear this yeah he's been morton thaler and it was morton thaler himself and it was his exports oh wow company there. <clears throat> and we started chatting in in german he and i uh and just you know, he, he wouldn't tell me where where they were discovered, but they were named after him. Uh, he passed away just this year. I read that. that. I read that they've got that article in the um, in this most recent issue of Amazonas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, quite a character. Uh, he had a he had a, a room that after getting to know him after several years, he finally let me into and it was all his very, very expensive fish that he shipped to Japan. Because they, they pay, the Japanese pay thousands and thousands of dollars for some of these fish. Oh, yeah. Are there any in particular that, that um, really caught your attention that, that were in his fish room, or is that something that, you know, you can't disclose? Uh, nothing really that caught my, my attention, because they're all big bruisers, and I'm I'm... You know, the biggest thing I keep are, are um, Rio Nanai angels, the angels uh -huh. that are, are marketed as the Peruvium Altum. Mm -hmm. And those guys will get, you know, top to bottom 10, 12 inches with a, you know, a good five, six inch body size. Huh. So were, were these like peacock bass then, like like that kind of a kind of a fish? Well, you know, the, the, the exotics... Um, 
from down there, the big stingrays. Oh, that's right. I always forget about the stingrays. <laughs> the 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 arowanas, um, and the arapimas and those kinds of things. So then, the big, it, so then they had to have been like fairly small though, right? Like fairly juvenile of the arapima. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah. man, these are these are gonna be some big tanks, if not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know. I've been offered lots of arapimas to bring back to the United States. No, thank you. There is a, um, it's somewhere in the Southeast Asian islands where I think it's an Australian. He has set up a game fishing area um, on yeah. one of these islands. I don't know if you've seen this, Michael, or not, but you can go there. You can catch peacock bass. You can catch arapimas. Like every big monster bruiser fish he has just stocked in abundance. It is, it's insane. Well, I, I take down a fishing pole and I'll go out. We have these little kayaks and I'll go out in some of the coaches, which are the Oxbow Lakes, uh, fishing for a peacock bass. And it was probably eight, nine years ago. I, I had gotten into a peacock bass and I had pulled it in and then I got, got another one. And the third one, <clears throat> that I was pulling in from this area. Uh, <clears throat> all of a sudden, like, I hear this, I feel this yank on my pole and this, you know, the streaming out of, uh, of uh, the line and nearly get pulled out of this uh, kayak because it's not the kind that you get down in. It's a sit on top plastic one. And then all of a sudden, my, my line let go and I reel in half of a peacock bass. Wow. What do you think got it? An arapima? No, it it could have been a caiman. Oh, I yeah, have yeah. no idea. Uh, but but I only got half that peacock bass. Wow! And, and one, of things, one of the things that is a lot of fun to catch on on rod and reel are uh, piranhas. Oh, I can imagine that. That'd be a lot of fun. Now, will the piranhas attack? Will the will the piranhas attack a hooked piranha? Uh, no, we, what we do is we take fish and we chop up fish and feed, uh, bits and pieces of, uh, of fish. And they, they, they're schooling fish. We've never had a person bit by a piranha unless they're saying, oh, look, do they bite and they stick their finger in the piranha's mouth. <clears throat> That's the only time we've ever had a piranha, uh, bite. And that, that hap happens too often. We had a couple teenage boys a couple of years ago. Both of them did that. Oh my goodness! And and they were with their mother, and then they went to show their mother, and had their mother doctor them up, and fit, you know, and then they whine for a day about, you know, their piranha bite. Why would the second one? What is wrong with the second one after his brother gets bit? What is going on? Uh, there? Maybe it was a, maybe it was a thing of, of of he got too much attention from mom. Now I wanted attention from mom. Oh my goodness! So I will say, Michael, though, like if so, so we we already know that. I desperately want to go on one of these trips with you guys, right? Like that, that is established. You've now talked about fishing on a tropical fish expedition. I absolutely love to fish with rod and reel. So I think like if we're able to also do that, this, yes. this just, oh man, I may go AWOL on my family for a bit, but no, I we, mean, uh, in all seriousness, that sounds amazing. You know, the big, uh, greenest catfish. No, I'm not. I mean, I can Google but, it real quick. Uh, the, yeah, Google that. Um, they get huge. What, right? what kind of catfish was it? Egrenus. Egrenus? Tiger. Oh, tiger. Egrenus. T-I-G-R-I-N-I-S, I believe it is. Egrenus. Catfish. All right, let's see what what pops up. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. We, we'll catch those. Oh, wow. Off the boat. And uh, several years ago, um, I had gotten Ian Fuller to finally come to South America on a trip with me. Um, and he brought a couple of his English friends with him, and they were fishing. <clears throat> and they caught a couple big ones. And those are some of the ones that Morton Dollar had for sale, too, that he shipped to Asia. Um, and we made those into fish and chips. This is a beautiful and they fish. Were about the, the people in the uh, fish stores back in the UK could not be, would not believe them if they said uh, that they had taken these, you know, five hundred pound. Uh, that's 
sterling, our British sterling pounds, uh, catfish and turned them into fish and chips. <laughs> good eating though. Very, very good eating. Oh man, yeah, and this is a this is a beautiful fish in its own right. But uh, yeah, yeah. What, so what? I've caught, I've caught a lot of those. So on So when I lived in San Diego and I would I would fish a lot in San Diego Bay. Um, when you would throw whether it's live bait or um, you know a plastic bait into the water, and let's say your target fish is a spotted bay bass. Um, and this is just purely recreational fishing, um, you know, without fail, you would get a lizard fish. A lizard fish would attack your line. These things were terrible. They were slimy. They would mess your lures up. So when you're fishing in the Amazon, what's like, what's the comparable of if you throw a rod and if you throw tackle into the water, you're going to get one of these like annoying fish on it. Like, what would that be? Uh, there's a little spiny catfish that we get lots and lots of. Do you remember what what uh, what like the scientific or the common name is for that guy, or is it just something that's just so? It, ab- ab- it's, it's it's skipping me right now. Okay, no worries. <laughs> but there is something like that where it's like, man, it's one of those again. Yeah, one of those again, and and they're they're a bear to get off the hook, uh, and the the spines if you get hit with them hurt. Yeah, I can uh, imagine. Yeah. Are, now, is there is there going to be any venom in their spines, or is it just one of the painful, just just a painful thing? A, pain, a painful. Okay. Yeah, the, the you'll get virtually every trip. I get hit by the venom from a Corydoras. Oh, nice. Some of them are worse than others, and it and it hurts for you know ten fifteen minutes. And now and you that, go, darn! I've I've been doing this for years. I should know better. And now that's going to be the same toxin that's in their uh, pectoral fin, that gland, right? Yeah. When like the yeah. the julii and whatnot, when they get stressed or the stirbi, they release that kind of milky substance. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, interesting. They 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 release it into your finger. Oh man! So do you get like a numbing sensation, or is it just is it just pure pain? It just hurts. Okay. And now one of the things I want to go back to is, you know. In 1972, you went down to Argentina. You learned Spanish there. You come back. Were you living in Billings, Montana at the time in high school? Yes. Okay. And so so I know with languages, it's one of those things where if you don't use it, you lose it, right? So how did you keep your proficiency with Spanish up over the decades? Well, in uh, undergraduate school, I decided to go to Portugal for a year uh, to learn Portuguese. Um, and use my Spanish as a foundation, realizing once I got there that it was a totally different language. Uh, And then uh, I had the good fortune of, uh, in graduate school, working on my PhD, being recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency. Oh. And and I spent 35 years with them. And if one thing they do do very, very well is they work really hard on people's language skills. So I learned some other languages while I was there. And they work hard on uh, the language school there, uh, does a lot of work to help you maintain your languages. And you want to go ahead, just that you want to stay on the record and keep that in the podcast. Do you want me to edit that out? Or are we good with with the listeners I, we're, knowing? We're, we're good. We're good for that now. I, I, I can say that. <laughs> All right. So so now now if you want even more credibility, like if, if you're going to tell me, hey, Randy, go to a foreign country with somebody that you've never, you know, you've never been to this country. You're going to go out and kind of be in the outback, if you will. Um, oh, yeah. He's he's been there over 20 times and he's also former CIA. Sign me up like <laughs> that seems like, you know, that that sounds like a pretty good setup. Yeah, I've got good situational awareness. <laughs> That's awesome, Michael. So yeah, so so yeah, being able to keep up on your Spanish, and I completely blank that you know before you and I had been talking, and that uh, the fala portuguese, so speaking Portuguese, um, yep. I, I know a little bit of Portuguese myself. And the funny thing about that language is there's just enough there's just enough Spanish in Portuguese that you think you can say some words in Spanish, and it's like nah, they use they use like a different um, European language, or they they use a different mix in in Portuguese that they wouldn't in Spanish. So it's it's like well, just it, enough it, to confuse you. Yeah, the simplest way to look at it is it's it's a Latin language, both of them. And the Spanish has five vowels, and each vowel has one vowel sound. Portuguese also has five vowels, but each vowel may have 
a dozen different vowel sounds, and they have double and triple vowels. Uh, so, and they double and triple vowels. Each grouping has different sounds. So it, it's it's much more difficult to learn Portuguese than Spanish. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, well, the funny thing is my listeners are now like, what is going on here? You know, you came, yeah, here, well, you came here for an Amazon adventure talk, and now you're getting hit with the differences between, uh, you know, vowels uh, in, yeah. Yeah, in, in Portuguese and Spanish. So, you know, you come for the fish, so, but you stay, for the, uh, you stay for everything else, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, my Spanish is, is, over the years going down there, has improved dramatically. And I, uh, they say I don't have an accent anymore. Oh wow, that that is incredibly impressive. But that I have too much uh, Portuguese pronunciation in my Spanish. <laughs> oh, uh, so then, so then, when you when you've gone to Brazil, then and I'm going to assume you've been to Brazil. Their Portuguese, um, I know, in talking with my wife, who's Portuguese, that they add like extra flair on the Brazilian Portuguese that European Portuguese doesn't have. So, do you ever get tripped up when hearing a Brazilian Portuguese person talk? Uh, well, I I tease tease. Uh, Brazilian Portuguese speakers that I do not speak Brasileiro. I speak Portuguese continental, you know, mm-hmm. Portuguese from Portugal. Right, I don't right. speak Portuguese from Brazil. Yeah, and one of the so I had spent three weeks in uh, in Portugal. I've I've been to where my wife's parents are from uh, twice. Once for three weeks, once for two weeks, and just being immersed there in that short period of time. And maybe it's because I had a little bit of of Spanish, um, you know, growing up in California and taking Spanish in high school. That um, it, you just immerse yourself in those places, and when they're predominantly speaking that language, you know, you, you just immerse yourself, and then you almost feel like, you know, by three weeks, you, you feel like you have a really strong yeah. grasp on it, yeah. and then yeah. you leave, and then you never speak it again at home, and then you just lose it, yeah. right? So I can imagine that, you know, going down there somewhere somewhere like that, and, you know, unfortunately, these trips are, from a language perspective, they're only a week, or, you know, it sounds like maybe a week and a half in duration at the longest. But, you know, if you're able to go down into a country and stay there and, and just immerse yourself in their language and, and kind of block yourself off from your own, you know, native tongue, yeah. like you are bound to pick up that language. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I learned my languages. Just survival immersion. If you don't learn it, you're not going to be able to function. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be real tough. And, you know, I, I guess it's uh, to continue down this path of digression. um, or is it digression or just digressing? I don't know. Somebody's going to have to fact check me or uh, grammatically check me on that. Uh, you know, what is technology going to do to that kind of survival by immersion with these, you know, more and more accurate, more and more on the fly translation apps that we have with technology? Like, is that are, are we just going to lose one more, you know, kind of human trait that we have um, because of technology, like this ability to learn a language? But part of it, the if children are exposed to a second language when they're growing up, like if you and your wife insisted on speaking Portuguese with your, your kids and the baby to come, um, they are going to be better able to be problem solvers. This is my PhD. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we're really digressing. Now. You know, lay it on me. This is great. This is a free show. So if people tune out because they don't want to hear it, then, you know, you didn't pay anything to be here. Uh, I'm sure nobody is, but c- continue, Michael, please. But um, the, you're better able to be a problem solver because the child will know, okay, the person's speaking Spanish to me. I need to speak Spanish back to them or they're speaking English with me. I need to speak English. Okay. So they, they start problem solving very good, very quickly. They look at the world through two, two different languages, which opens up the mind. When they get to school, they're better able to handle mathematics and science and, and music. Uh, and music opens up so many doors uh, for the mind to, to, to be creative. Uh, so, you know, and, and once you've learned a couple languages, generally you have a knack for picking up a lot of their languages and i discovered that wow and now does that does does that translate so let, let, let's take it the other way across the pacific right we're we're now we're dealing with languages that are not based in latin um have you been able to pick up any of the asian languages 
Um, I've never had the opportunity. Oh, okay, no. okay. Oh, but that, um, that's interesting. So, so going back to your, you know, teaching the the child a, a second language, um, very, very timely. My mother in law, again, the the Portuguese mother in law, she's flying. Well, I only have one mother in law, but she's flying up here to stay with us, um, and she'll be landing tomorrow. And uh, between her and my my father in law and my wife, they've been teaching. You know, when they go down, when my wife goes down to visit the family, uh, they t- they've been teaching my son Portuguese. And you're you're thinking, oh, you're saying these words around a toddler, he's not going to remember. But he knows narish, and that's nose in Portuguese. He knows cabeza. So there's, you know, there again. There's yeah. cabeza. That's that similarity with Spanish. Um, he knows boca. Yeah. He knows he, he can he remembers these words. And and when you say hey, grandma's <laughs> coming, and he knows how to pronounce grandma and grandpa in Portuguese, which yeah. um, they're they're very tonal. The difference between grandma and grandpa. So I struggle with it, but he 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 gets it very well. Um, and it's just amazing that this little, you know, kid that's not even two and a half years old remembers these foreign language words. And my mother is Korean and he knows that she's harmony. And so that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's grandmother in Korean. And it's, it's just amazing. The, um, yeah. And, and it's, it's encourage it and ask your, your, your grandmother to speak nothing but Portuguese with her. With yeah. Your, yeah. She does. She does. A lot, she does a lot of that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've even told my wife when, when we've come back years ago from past trips that, you know, just in our home, you know, so I can develop the second language, even though, unfortunately, in the business side of things, knowing a language like Portuguese isn't as valued nowadays as one of the Chinese languages or or, you know, fr- what French used to be. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, having this second language, you know, knowing mm-hmm. it like it's just such a cool little thing to have in your back pocket. Yeah, well, the um, the. Spanish is so predominant, it's, you know, in, in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area where I live, there is a huge population of Spanish speakers, and they struggle in English, and they, I speak Spanish with them all the time, and they, they're firstly surprised that somebody that looks like me can speak Spanish and speak it well. Um, and I just tell them, well, I've got lots of professors, and you're you're my professor, so if I say something wrong, please correct me. So I may have a Salvadorian correct me in one way, and a Honduran correct me in a different way. Uh, but it, it's it's with the influx of Hispanics into our country, it's rather important that people learn to speak Spanish. Yeah, and and my wife has her profession; she's a nurse, and uh, she's actually been able to leverage her. Um, you know, dual language of, of Portuguese, and she can she can you know yeah. hang pretty well with with the Spanish speaker. So, yeah, um, yeah I mean, you well, def- I, you definitely I, do have a point there. I I went to my doctor today, and his his nurse is uh, uh, is Jorge, and Jorge and I always speak in in Spanish together because <laughs> he's more comfortable speaking Spanish than than the English. But his English is perfect. Oh, that's funny. He he actually called Miguel Barbero. You know, when when he comes to the door to call me in. Mm-hmm. So let, let's. Uh, I I think I can. I think Did I can weave fish? this back. No, I think yeah. I think I can weave this back, Michael. So let's say, you know, I want to go on my first expedition. Uh, I want to go to a South American country, right? And you know, I'm one of the people, and I'm just throwing out a hypothetical person here. Um, I I want to know the language. I, like I want to be able to converse a little bit more and speak about. Uh, uh, speak about fish with you know with the people that I'm around, or be able to ask for the bathroom, or these various things. So then, what is in knowing that somebody wants to prepare, um, they want to immerse themselves in Spanish. Do you have like do you have any opinions on a software like Rosetta Stone? Like if somebody wanted to immerse themselves in that, you know, six months before going on this kind of an adventure. I would I would there there there's some pre pre things out there. Check with the State Department uh, Department of State and see what might be accessible from their language school that they since since your tax dollars paid for it i think they have some of their stuff accessible oh interesting and 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 your the government spent lots of money of our tax dollars uh developing language uh teaching skills um so before spending money on something check to see what's accessible from the government mm-hmm. so let, let's say or, I, or even your local local high schools lots of high local high schools have adult education and they have uh uh 
basic Spanish classes. Mm-hmm. So let's say uh, let's say I'm Australian, right? So I've, I've got listeners in Australia, um, and, and Spanish isn't a thing that they teach over there. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that that's a, that's probably a, a factually true statement. Um, would you then say? Is a program like Rosetta Stone, is that worth the investment? Are there other online resources that you would look into first that maybe aren't provided by a government? Um, Babbel. Babbel. Possibly. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, but, you know, there's, come with me and I'll help you. I'll teach you. <laughs> there you go. So I, I think we were able to kind of bring that whole language conversation, right, back into fish and expeditions. You know, the, uh, <laughs> we, we, do, we do two trips in, uh, in August every year. And some people come down for just one week. Some people come down for two weeks. Uh, and then we do a, like a week and a half trip January, February every year. Um, and, you know, we are the only people in Peru that are exporting the fish that people collect. So we take care of the exporting. Uh, I can help you. You can get a license to to import if you have a like you're you're at Seattle. You've got U.S. and Fish and Wildlife there in Seattle. You can get a license for a hundred dollars and handle it all by yourself uh, without as a hobbyist. Uh, you just get a license in your name as a hobbyist, and you call the U.S. Fish and Wildlife office near you, and uh, you know we'll ship the fish right to you that way. Or if you don't want to do it, I. I transship lots of fish for people. Oh, if if, it, if we're talking about me, I'm going to piggyback on Dean and Corey. That's oh yeah, that's what if, I'm going to do. <laughs> Dean, Dean and Dean and Corey have piggybacked on me. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> there I, you if, go. If Dean, Dean did the shipping thing, and he he's actually used my uh, my license with use of U.S. and Fish and Wildlife, and he is he is a registered agent of of my business. Nice. So, um, so there, there's two, and I want to be very, like I told you in the beginning, I want to be very sensitive of your time this evening. Cause I know it's getting late for you on the East coast. Uh, the, the, there's two directions I want to take this one is the epistogramoides, um, Paculopanis. Is that how you pronounce it? Pacula? Polkapensis. Polkapensis. So, Pucalpapensis. Pucalpapensis. So, and ensis means coming from, ensis is coming from Pucalpa. The, the original phenotype location was in the, the Pucallpa region of Peru. I love that you hit me with the etymology on that because that's one of the things anytime I see a, a fish species, the genus and the species, I always want to know uh, what that Greek or Latin breaks down to. So it's actually, thank you for doing that, Michael. Um, so I almost, I think I want to have you come back on in a couple months and talk about this guy. Um, and this is the only, and what's so unique about this species or this fish is that it's the only one in its genus. And so it's not, you know, we didn't mispronounce epistogramma. This is actually a whole other genus. Um, and it looks like the main difference is going to be in the number of fins and the anal rays. I'm sure there's other differences. I don't want to go down that path. The rays. The rays, the rays. right. What I would the like spot. you to do um, to wrap this conversation up is, you know, if, if you can give like an abbreviated a run through of the itinerary, right? For maybe your, and I'll jump on the website. Like, what is it? Your, let's say the kind of the beginner package, I guess, would be, I don't know, let's say like the seven day. Is it a seven day trip? Either one is a beginner package. What's that? Either one is a beginner package. Either if one. If you want to come down, you know, if you're going to spend $1,000 for a plane ticket, it's not that much more expensive to stay uh, for a second week and you get a discount for the second week. Uh, but, if all, but if all you can take is 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 a week off from work, you can leave the states on Friday night, get into Iquitos, Peru on Saturday, be out in a boat collecting Sunday morning, okay? And we will be collecting two, three times a day, and some days we'll be going out at night and collecting. Uh, and then you, we collect all week. We get back into town on Friday. Uh, Saturday, we take our fish to the exporters, get them situated. And then on Saturday, if you need to head back and you need to be back home to work on Monday, you can leave on Saturday uh, and be back and go to Lima and then catch a plane um, Saturday night back to the United States on Sunday, getting you back to the United States on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I, so I would, it, oh, huh? go for it. 
Oh, I was going to say, I want to break down kind of, so this, this trip with empty Amazon is actually on a vessel, right? And so once you get, once you get to this boat, you are, you are essentially on that boat for the entire collecting trip, except when you go on kind of the little, the little runabouts, right? Or the little, the little dugouts, I guess, whatever, whatever the term we want to use. Um, we have, we have genuine aluminum boats with motors outboard motors on nice <laughs> nice and so so that uh, that that so main the motor's 85 feet long okay yeah that's a good size boat it, it uh sleeps uh 16 in a pinch uh we have a nice dining room uh that we also use for sorting out the fish and then we clean the tables well um and a cook and a guy that makes cleans your your sleeping bunk room every day and and makes your bed for you and uh and the crew just loves the uh, tropical fish collecting they are so proficient uh you'll catch one they'll catch 10 <laughs> nice uh, but but and if you tell them it's like uh last year i i they came with uh penguin tetris which are just so, so neat. They went out collecting at night and they brought penguins. And I told them I was looking for penguinos. That's the Spanish transliteration of, of, of penguin tetra. And they brought me back about 50. Oh, wow. Now that's we cool. We go discus fishing at night and we go angelfish fishing at night and uh, those kinds of things. So. Well, I, I feel, so what, what I was kind of getting at with, you know, building or kind of, building out this this expedition and it you know being based on this mothership if you will like um knowing that your previous trip last year with with that Corey and dean were on um you know that was that trip was you know you had a, a physical brick and mortar location with the aquariums and that's where the bunks were right that you guys spent every night and then there were long drives to various destinations to go collecting and you guys got really really cool fish um and then a long drive back it, it, it yeah. feels like for me if i was given the choice like hey we can go on this kind of trip where we have a physical home base or we can do this kind of like boat mothership adventure like the boat mothership just just inherently feels more adventurous if you will right for lack of another descriptive word like that one i feel like i'd gravitate towards that trip because one i i I guess i just love boats in general but that seems like maybe there's there's less travel time between the destinations because the boat's kind of on the move inherently yeah the boat's on the move and 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 those kinds of things and you know we'll stop and go collecting you know there there, that looks like a good spot we'll go there or i've been down so often Devin and I both know where things are at. We start the week by saying, what kind of fish are you interested in collecting? <clears throat> and then uh, and then we know where we need to go to, uh, so you can collect them. You know, we, uh, my, my son was, uh, wanted to get uh, puffers. And it was uh, Thursday morning, and he, he said, where are my puffers? I want to catch puffers. And so we took them on a sandbar and we caught hundreds of Colomesis acellas, which is a pure freshwater puffer that's a schooling puffer. Now, is that what we know as the the Amazon puffer or is that going to be a different puffer? It's it's I guess it would be the Amazon puffer. I only know it by the the Latin name. Okay. Colomesis acellas. And. You know, we'll, we'll we'll pull hundreds at times into wow. uh, in a same net, and the, the locals call them globus because they blow up like a globe, and they'll say globus, uh, and and we, you know, we'll, we'll catch uh, the little freshwater soles, um, in same nets, and and they call them soles, which which is. The, the, so the Spanish pronunciation of soul, and it's also their uh, 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 money down there is, is uh, the soul lays. No, like a, a food fish, right? <laughs> well, no, these are these are small. They never they I've never seen one much more than just a few inches around. It, and so, Fresh oh, so when you say that's their money, you mean like that their currency is called the sole. Yeah, the, oh, the, gotcha. the money is, is the, the currency is, is the sole. Sorry. Gotcha. No, no, no worries. 
you're gonna have to do some major editing of this. Uh, no, no, so. we're, we're we're keeping it. It's it's uh, this is great stuff. This is all staying in. But um, no, it's you know it's it's great because you get up in the morning and the coffee's made and your your the cooks has great um, uh, food, great breakfast, lunch, dinner, um, and. I'm on a strange diet, and he's even able to help me with my diet. Um, so they 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 accommodate. We've never had problems. We've had vegetarians, and there's tons and tons of vegetables and things like that, and lots of beans for the proteins for the vegetarians. And, you know, I, I can tell uh, you, Michael, that, uh, you know, and this is just – you know, outside of the uh, you mentioning rod and reel fishing, I mean, you've got me completely sold. And even if I didn't have this conversation with you, talking with Dean and talking with Corey and, and knowing, you know, one, how safe they felt on, on their Peru journey with you, um, you know, how much fun they had, how knowledgeable you and the people you were working with were. Um, to me, I mean, the, the, that just speaks volume in, volumes in and of itself. And, um, you know, I can tell you definitely that, uh, you know, you'll probably be seeing me in the next couple of years on one of these trips with these guys. And then you'll bring down your whole family. No, oh, exactly. No, that's uh, so. One of the guests, uh, Bruno Magerly out of New Jersey, uh, he was going to take his family on a uh, on a collecting trip with Heiko Blair. And to me, it's like, what you know? How amazing of a trip! Assuming your kids are old enough to 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 go and appreciate something like that, but to go on a uh, on a, a tropical fish collecting trip down to South America just seems, you know, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> We, 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 we do, we've had lots of families. We've had lots of families come with us. And it's, it's always a delight to have families come with us. Um, Assuming the kids had, are into it, right? Had, I, I could see it being real had, bad if you take like a teenage, like a teenager that doesn't want to be there. That could be a terrible trip for them. But assuming, you know, the kids are like, yeah, man, let's do this. Well, we, had, we had a young, uh, probably last summer we had a young man who, um, entered middle school this year <clears throat> and, um, his dad's an avid fish collector and, and he was, he was all about fish uh, swimming in the river. And we, we made special stops for him to go swim in the river <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. and, 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 and run on the beach and, and play soccer and those kinds of things. Uh, and he he actually started really getting into catching fish towards the end of the week. He this this was a lot of fun uh, having that. But we've had people come come where they've had family members that have just come along to experience the Amazon, and we'll go out collecting fish, and they'll they'll stay in the boat and and read a book and just enjoy the uh, the passing of the day. Are there hammocks on the boat? Yes. Oh, I'm sold. I, I must admit I've fallen asleep more than once in a hammock. There, I mean, that's just a dream of being on the boat, whether it's moving or, stay, or uh, you know, staying still. It's anchored up somewhere, but just hanging out in that hammock where you know you're a foot away from the edge of the boat, and you're either reading a book or you're just taking a nap, and the Amazon River is just right there. Like that, that's a dream right there. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 great, great. All right, Michael. Good photography. Um, <clears throat> If, if you have an interest in birds, lots and lots of birds, Devin is a PhD ornithologist. Uh, and if you have, if you're into bird watching, <clears throat> believe me, he, he, uh, <clears throat> he will enjoy spending time with you. Uh, great, uh, photography opportunities. Great. We, we, a lot of erping opportunities, you know, the lizards and snakes and those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, we get so focused on the fish, or I get so focused on the fish in this conversation that you forget just the enormity of the fauna, right? That's that's down there. It's like, oh, I'm I'm just focused with my head in the water, but above the water, there's just so much, so much else. And you know, I, I guess those creatures will occasionally go in the water as well. But you know, just so much life in the Amazon that uh, hopefully, hopefully, something for everybody. Yeah, well, the the, the de facto c- captain of the boat, Segundo, he's fearless. He'll see a he'll see an anaconda. He'll jump in and grab it. Oh my god! <laughs> or he'll 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 see a, you know a big caiman or something like that, and he'll he'll jump in and wrestle it and catch it. So it's just 
one year, one week year we were out and he spotted some uh, two little eyes and he, he jumped out and he came, he caught a nighthawk with his hands. What is, what is that? A nighthawk? A nighthawk. What is uh, that? I've got a picture of it. Uh, an actual bird? It, it, it's an actual bird. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, wow. And Dean's Dean told you his, the story about the jaguar, right? What? I feel like he, I feel like I've heard him say the jaguar story. Yeah, we were we were on the Rio Nanai two years ago, and um, this guy had come in come in over the weekend to join us, and we had stayed up on the river. <clears throat> and I said, "Well, let's take Neil out and do some night sailing on the sandbar across the river." And we get over there and we start night sailing, and then somebody spots these two yellow little dots. On, on the top of the sandbar, right on the edge of the of the forest, <clears throat> and we and we get more um, flashlights over there, and it's a jaguar, a wild jaguar. Oh wow! And uh, Dean went back and got uh, his daughter's camera, and and got a really great picture of it. Oh wow! And Devin, who who has never seen a wild jaguar <clears throat> had gone into uh, Iquitos to do, to conduct some business over the weekend. And the crew called him and, and said, uh, should we catch it for you? And his response was leave it alone. <laughs> leave it alone. Yeah. His, response was, his response to me when I talked to him next time was he's been going down there for like 25 years. Right. Uh huh. And he probably spends six months a year down there in the jungle. His response to me was, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, because he's never seen a wild jaguar. Wow. Aren't they called like the ghost of the jungle or something like that? Don't they have kind of an, uh, a mysterious name to them or like a mystique? Uh, I Could be, could be, yeah. Huh. The black, maybe, the black panthers. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Wow, that I mean, that's that that's super cool, Michael. And you know, like I said, I, I wanted to be very respectful of your time. I mean, I could have you on here for another, you know, hour or two hours and just pick your brain and hear all your your experiences. But I've got to, I've got to leave the guests uh, or the the listeners, um, you know, begging for another Michael Barber episode. Um, so what I do want to confirm is that, uh, folks, and I'll have this in the show notes. Uh, www.mtamazon.com is how people can find out more about uh, the MT Amazon expeditions. Yeah, and, and potentially be able to to get a hold of you, so you guys do have a contact page. Um, so I'll make sure I've got uh, sh- notes in the show for that. And yeah, okay. I'd be, I would be hard pressed to think that anybody listening to this that has even has an inkling of you know desire to go down there, they're not like fully on board right now with me. Of you know, yep, we we, we got to make this trip happen. And you know, what better person to go with than somebody who's experienced, um, you know, collecting fish, but also with the uh, you know work credentials, wink, wink, that uh, you have, Michael. So <laughs> I think that's a uh, you know that, that's a pretty awesome combination. And so you know, thank you very much again for uh, staying up with me and in uh, talking on the podcast. Okay, and and if I may, I. I would like to uh, thank your listeners for the privilege of their time today. And I would be delighted to come back and uh, chat with you again. Awesome, Michael. Always welcome.